Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So this happened yesterday afternoon in Gage Park on the southwest side. down uh, passed away yesterday of uh, the honor guard uh, congregating at Mount Sinai Hospital early evening yesterday uh, in tribute to that fallen officer three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey pro answer line six four six three six da turnkey pro text line he was on the department for five years he leaves behind a wife and the reason they're not releasing his name is because he has relatives <clears throat> in a different country that's what they would tell me but the gunman was just 18 years old, and the police told me that he had a gun charge from last year 
when he was 17 years old. So we don't know if he was out on parole awaiting trial. We don't know if he was on electronic monitoring at this point. But after he shot the officer and the bullet went through the head and in another shot through the leg, um, they then returned fire. So he is at Mount Sinai Hospital in critical but stable condition. Uh, right. So that happened. The reason it was important to, to listen to the scanner oh, because that's uh, the number one. They're responding to a domestic. Yeah. And as we know, um, the Say perhaps it. the only thing that's more volatile than a traffic stop is a domestic, which is why all of the discussions about oh, you know, for just d- d- domestics and family situations, we can just replace police with social workers. Yeah, that's the Brandon Johnson model. He doesn't want to hire more police. He wants social workers, and he has said that he wants them to respond. Respond to domestic violence calls. Well, that is what happens at domestic violence calls. And and you understand how perpetually vigilant you need to be. Two minutes, call, description of what's happening, through a phone outside in a domestic dispute. Now he's on foot. They've got, they see him, they get a description of him. And all of a sudden, close contact, shots fired, and an officer's down. That's how fast it can happen. Yeah, I mean, that. I'm so glad you brought that to everybody. And, of course, Mayor Lightfoot, Superintendent Brown, both short-timers, uh, went to show their support at the Mount Sinai Hospital. Every single day, on every shift, officers run to danger for our safety. If you see an officer tonight or the next day or the day after that, thank them for their service. Hmm. Yeah, it's a nice sentiment, but obviously, given the person delivering it, sort of hollow, I, I would say, charitably. Uh, ironically, this happens on the day that David Brown announces effectively he's done as Chicago police superintendent on March 16th because there's going to be a new mayor and thus right. there's going to be a new superintendent. He sees the writing on the wall. But do you know who they put as the interim? Eric Carter, who, if I can remind you all, back in 2021 when Ella French was murdered, would not wait for the Chicago bagpipes to arrive uh, when they transported the body from the hospital to the medical examiner's office. Nobody likes Eric. The only person who likes Eric Carter is Eric Carter. Well, I suspect there'll be uh, changes at the leadership of the police department in one direction or the other, depending on the outcome on April 4th. But um, I suspect those people that are part of Lori Lightfoot's uh, authority structure in the police department will be turned out and won't stop with David Brown. But something else, too. I mean, just what this says about the city (laughs) uh, the day after the primary election, what this says about the city. And I, I just uh, listening to the scanner and being sickened by it, like everyone else was, to to hear about this news. It, given the political ruling class in the city of Chicago, I I really think like sending cops on patrol is like when D.C. politicians send young men, our young men, to die in faraway lands yep. in pursuit of ill-defined and unattainable objectives. This is what happens when you forget who's on which side of the civilization barbarism divide. You turn police officers and law-abiding citizens in general into political cannon fodder. And that's really the story of the last, really, couple of decades in Chicago, particularly the last decade under both Tiny Dancer and Tiny Lori. You just turned... Uh, uh, police officers and the law-abiding into political cannon fodder. They are subservient to your ideological political agenda. And then you just added in, you just added to the mayor's office over the last uh, few years, 
and to Tim Evans, who's been there for quite some time. You just added Kim Fox to round out the ruling class. And remember, we're going to find out, again, if this 18-year-old who has a gun charge from last year was on parole with no cash bail, if he was on electronic monitoring, what happened? Craig Mount Greenwood. Hey, good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Uh, my daughter and uh, my son-in-law, they're both Chicago police officers currently. Uh, I've got cousins. I mean, they, were, they uh, retired out of there. But my daughter uh, confided in my wife yesterday with all of this. That uh, every day when she uh, leaves her house to go to work, she uh, kisses her dogs goodbye. She uh, she the thought crosses her mind if she'll even be coming back home and all that. And here's the thing: there was all kinds of things that have been changed with uh, regard to how the police officers respond to things like this. With regard to keeping their gun in their in their holster, they can't have it out and everything like that. They they have to do all kinds of reports when they touch go near their gun and all that. And they are constantly made unsafe and unsafe by all the crap that goes on with those people. It's unbelievable. Did, did, did your daughter know the uh, officer who was shot and killed last night? Yes, she did. She actually worked with him, and, and her husband knew him. They both knew him. They said, man, he was a great guy. He was a you know, good guy in that, uh, you know, he had that little daughter and everything. And uh, Oh, he, he did have a daughter? daughter? Pardon me? He did have a daughter? Yeah, a young daughter, about five. Same. Oh, and... Uh, and um, he uh, and uh, my him and my daughter were were basically they're both uh, young on the force and everything like that. My daughter might have been on uh, a year or so longer, but they were both young and uh, early on they were together. You know, young they knew each other together. Well, where, so well, really, where, 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 since your daughter's been on the force for six years, where, where is she? Where does she uh, work out of? Now she's out of uh, see uh, four. She's out of four now. She was it. She and she was on mass transit for a while, and she's uh, she's actually been in a lot of uh, locations. I guess when you start out, they move you around a lot because yeah. she was in a couple other districts. And, and so, and, what, what, and so, you know, when she talks to you, your wife, what does she say about what's happened on the force over the last say six years since she's been on? What she's seen? Oh well, things have changed a lot because um, uh, this is when they. Uh, they hired uh, these like civil, like you know, non-police. Uh, uh, they set up these like kind of like uh, committees or something like that to make rule to decide on what kind of rules of engagement or if you can uh, do this. So she was really like um, getting all kinds of new rules and things, and people were telling her, "Man, we this is this is when the police were really getting annoyed by it." Like I say, I've got two cousins. They both re- they both retired now. They both had more than twenty five years in, and they one retired two years ago, and the other retired last um, last year. And it was all because of the um, he says that the job is just getting so uh, unbearable with regard to the, uh, to, to, to all the uh, red tape that they put on the police officers with regard to um, how they respond to uh, situations, like even walking up to a car where. You, you might uh, be, you, you know, maybe there's a whole bunch of people, you know, young guys in the car or something like that, and they might have some fear, and they'd want to have their gun or their hand on their gun or something and have that unlatched and kind of ready. No, no, you, you, if you do that, you got, you have that's consi- considered a negative or something. And even like a situation like a domestic, yeah, you can't have you, you can't be ready with your weapon or anything. You can't, you can't do it, you know, in, in the, in the, before you could, the police right. would operate that. 
be ready be able to, to be able to defend yourself, right? And be be ready to defend yourself. Exactly. Thanks yeah. for the call, Craig. Appreciate it. Uh, John in Naperville. Yeah, that, that dispatch call should be mandatory for anybody on that COPA board. Anybody on the COPA board that's going to hold the police officer responsible, that should be mandatory training. It should be mandatory ride-alongs for at least a couple of weeks. You know, these criminals, if guns are so bad, why are people let out of jail that have guns illegally? Why isn't a mandatory five-year sentence hard labor if you get caught with an illegal gun? This stuff would stop overnight if that kind of stuff was out there. Thanks for the call, John. Tell Kim Fox. Hello, Kim Fox. Another graphic reminder of the policies that you have put in place. And another person is dead. Well, and I'll tell you, um, I mean, not to make this political, but it is. It is. This is, this, this is political, the political environment that leads to the actual environment. And um, this, what happened last night, and this, what we're describing, is why there is a chance for someone like Paul Vallis to actually win the mayor's race in, in, in a, even in a city that has been completely taken over by identitarian politics. Enough of these incidents may turn enough people away from uh, the teachers unions that lord, the teachers union and the public sector unions that lord over this city to out you know to, to basically outnumber those that have command control of the city and frankly the state we'll see yeah but, can but, you but imagine, incidents oh. incidents like this are game changers can you imagine if brandon johnson wins and he hires social workers to respond to domestic violence calls can you imagine putting your life on the line going to war well there's, there's oh my god and i know they'll be accompanied by an officer whatever but that's there's there's the idea Jesus. of putting social workers in the on the front lines to respond to these calls and then there's how many social workers actually want to volunteer for the job. Yeah. And they should wear may, combat gear if they if, do it. If you want to if you want social workers to do this, you may have to conscript them, which I know that Chicago politicians are not below doing. It's like a hot steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's morning answer. On AM 560, the answer. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So, I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Just uh, one more remark about uh, the police officer who was murdered last night on the southwest side. Um, Because the talk and the talk in the last month or the month leading to the April 4th election for mayor and city council 
will be about the racial division in the city generally and specifically as it pertains to policing. But I want to make this point. I think a lot of our listeners understand this, but it should be made over and over again. There are a few Jesse Jackson-style race hustlers pushing it, the Black Lives Matter crew, pushing the racial division, pushing the defund the police, decarcerate the groups. There are a few. But it is so much more driven by effete white Marxists. It is the vanguard, not the proletariat, that is driving the destruction of Chicago. Yeah. And case in point, guess where Brandon Johnson received the most votes? In the 47th ward, in my ward, in Ravenswood, with white progressive voters. Wow. Yeah, well, that shouldn't I mean, be a surprise. I, uh, that shouldn't be a surprise. Oh, and by the way, where'd those Paul Vallis signs go in front of Lakeview High School? Mm-hmm. But, uh, so, I, I just, the, the top line, Chicago's a racially divided city, and so on, and it is, and it's it's terrible, and it's the most uh, de facto segregated city in the country, arguably. Said that for a long time, and it's reflected in what you see in CPS, for example. Mm-hmm. But who's driving it? You think it's like black? I mean, the outsider thinks, oh, it's just black versus Latino versus white and Asian is in the. No, no, no. It's being driven by the vanguard, which is white left. And yes, some of the black politicians and some of the Latino politicians and and C-suite types. But it is. But but it's mainly the C-suite types. And that's mainly white. Just uh, it's such an important thing to understand because it's the only way you're going to get more scales to fall from more eyes in the neighborhoods. You need a revolt against the vanguard class to use the uh, Leninist nomenclature that's so popular among Brandon Johnson and his supporters. You need the, the revolt against the vanguard in the city if you want to change the trajectory of the city. Speaking of... Uh, Idiotic policies, destructive policies, devastating policies being driven by effete white Marxists, turning our attention to COVID. Some important testimony before the House Select Committee on COVID on Tuesday. And uh, the stars were out. We'll talk a little bit more uh, later in the show with Martin Kaldorf about this, but I want to get to uh, give the opportunity for people to hear some of what was said and react to it. Because it's really important. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, who we've had on the show many times, mm-hmm. Stanford, uh, both uh, economist as well as medical doctor, he uh, testified, and he has been beating the drum for the last several weeks on the op-ed pages for essentially a COVID truth commission. And he and and he's authored devastating indictments of the public health uh, establishment in this country. And here was some of what he had to say in terms of the questions that need to be asked and answered, the explanations that need to be provided, and why his sort of COVID truth commission, if you will, is needed. So the American people deserve answers to fundamental questions about the pandemic. On what empirical basis were schools closed? Did public health decision makers consider the harms of their policies as thoroughly as their putative benefits? 
Why did COVID authorities ignore recovered immunity or failure of the vaccine to prevent disease transmission in re recommending vaccine mandates and discriminatory vaccine policies? With such a litany of failure, the American people deserve an honest COVID commission to evaluate the response and document all the errors as well as the few successes. In 1986, when the U.S. faced the national tragedy of the Space Shuttle Challenger explosion, Congress created a commission with independent outside experts, including Nobel Prize winning physicist Richard Feynman. His iconic demonstration of a faulty O-ring made brittle in the cold as the cause of the Challenger disaster led to fundamental reforms at NASA. The American people deserve a similar bipartisan, scientifically-minded COVID-19 commission so the public health disaster of the first last three years is not repeated. With, with uh, Dr. Makari, Dr. Kulldorff, and, and, and five other epidemiologists, I've written a document called the Norfolk Group Blueprint, where we list 80 pages of questions that need to be answered, scientific questions, in a bipartisan, scientifically-minded spirit to address uh, the, the failure of the public health establishment during the pandemic. Thank you. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line, 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. I know there'll be people who say, well, you know, nobody's going to be held to account. Uh, that's what we really need. That's what I really want. Agree. But um, even if that ends up being true, uh, this the idea of getting answers to 80 pages of questions that uh, these gentlemen and ladies in the profession have put together would be illuminating. It would be important. It would continue to keep this front and center. It would perhaps prompt some to uh, do some self-deprogramming, some of the COVIDians to do some deprogramming. If you get beaten about the gray matter long enough with the truth, sometimes it breaks through. And it provides at least the prospect that answers to questions that have heretofore gone unanswered could lead to accountability that has heretofore been elusive. Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line six four six three six is our turnkey dot pro text line. You could reach us at any time. So I I I mean I, I applaud I mean I applaud all these uh, these uh, professionals who put their reputations on the line and endured what they endured oh. the ridicule and the efforts to sideline them and negatively impact their careers and then by extension their family life and stuff i mean Bhattacharya, sunetra gupta martin kaldorf marty makari many many others are the real heroes in this story because they stood up against the world and said wait a second and by the way something that's important here too because there's been some criticism from well, I've seen it at like Marginal Revolution from Tyler Cohen and, and Alex Tabarrok of what they proposed, too, in the Great Barrington Declaration. Fine. And uh, I'm sure there were instances where, as we were going through this, Bhattacharya or Kaldorf or Makari uh, were not 100% right or what they proposed initially or the questions they were at. Maybe they there were some mistakes that they made, too, or misjudgments uh, uh, bad calls they made. Uh, we'll talk to Martin Kaldorf about that and see if he's got any examples. But the difference between them and the Tony Fauci's and all of the Tony Fauci apostles is that they put it out there and they wanted discussion. And that's still what they're calling for. They're not saying they're the oracle. They're not saying that they are science, unlike Fauci. 
They're saying scholarly debate, questions that need to be asked and answered, uh, studies that need to be peer reviewed, uh, more studies that need to be conducted before we make these blanket recommendations with moral certainty, much less mandates. And so that's the difference between them and a lot of other professionals in their space, a lot of their other colleagues who just threw in for political reasons with the orthodoxy within public health. And that's what Bhattacharya is getting to. Here's a good example of it. Next up, Dr. Marty Makari from Johns Hopkins. Uh, since the news of the week was DOE concluding that COVID did, in fact, originate from the Wuhan Virology Lab, a leak from that lab. Marty McCarry addressed that, and this is a good example of the corruption of the public health establishment from the very outset. The reason this is even an issue is that it's embarrassing we funded the lab. If we had not funded the lab, 100% of Americans would say this is obvious, this is a no-brainer. The epicenter of the world is five miles from one of the only high-level virology labs in China. The doctors initially were arrested and forced to sign uh, non-disclosure gag documents. The lab reports have been destroyed. They've not been turned over. The sequences reported from the lab to the NIH database were deleted by a request from Chinese scientists that called over early on and said, delete those sequences we put in the database. And two leading virologists, maybe the two... um, top virologists in the United States, Dr. Michael Farzan from Scripps and Dr. Robert Gary from Tulane, told Dr. Fauci on his emergency call in January of 2020 when he was scrambling soon after learning that the NIH was funding the lab, they both said that it was likely from the lab. Both scientists changed their tunes days later in the media And then both scientists received $9 million subsequent in funding from the NIH. It's a no-brainer that it came from the lab. I mean, at this point, it's impossible to acquire any more information. And if you did, it would only be affirmative. No-brainer. It's such a no-brainer. Christopher Wray is out pretending that that's where the FBI was the entire time. Of course. Whippy Goldberg said that too. You said, like, oh, of course we do. It was just political, so we didn't talk about it. Old jive. We I didn't mean, talk all these about left. It. Come on. You, you didn't let anybody talk about it. Yeah. You attempted to. And to the extent anybody did, you were just flying in formation with Fauci. Yeah. We don't know, but it's probably more this. And that's a conspiracy theory. So expunge it from the Internet. I mean, think of what we've learned in the last two weeks. The inefficiency of masks, even N95 masks, that uh, natural immunity is much stronger than three COVID vaccines. And that the, the COVID came from the lab in China. We'll, well, I, I would refer you to this brilliant oh yes. uh, top 10 piece that Makari wrote for the New York Post that we went through the other day. Ten myths that have now been completely debunked. Ten substantial policy pronouncements and uh, understandings associated with COVID that were made by the, the Fauci establishment that have turned out to be completely wrong starting with the 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 uh, the, i mean including the lab leak and and i know i know you get the hey i just said look i'm always open-minded but you probably more likely came from a wet market than not but i'm open-minded they weren't because we know we know from emails that that collins and fauci wanted to 
silence people like Bhattacharya and Kaldorf and the Great Barrington Declaration folks right from the beginning. They weren't saying, let's engage. Let, oh, did you hear what Dr. Bhattacharya said? Did you hear what Martin Kaldorf at Harvard said? Um, we should bring them in for a discussion. We should do something publicly so people can hear alternative opinions. We should make sure that we answer these scientific questions so that people have confidence in our recommendations. No, it was shut them up. Shut up and put your mask on and sit and down. And stand in your idiot circle. Don't forget that. That's right. And by the way, wouldn't you, speaking of the Truth Commission and the importance of that, what Bhattacharya is proposing, wouldn't you love to hear, wouldn't you love to see those two virologists Marty McCarry just mentioned whistle before a House Select Committee, a, a, bipart, well, a bipartisan COVID Truth Commission, for example, to answer for what Macari just described. They said it came from a lab January 2020. They changed their tune. They got $9 million in NIH funds. Gee, I'm, I shouldn't be surprised, but yet I'm surprised, Dan. George Naperville. Won't the leadership and power suffer? They made all their followers follow all these guidelines, and they're going to feel stupid. And I'm just wondering where that's going to go. Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, um, I, I guess we'll see who has the character to say, you know, some of the things that I recommended that I went along with were wrong. And I was wrong to do it. And I apologize. Just own it. Somebody man up, please. Elliot, Southside Elliot. Oh, no. <laughs> Good morning, Dan and Amy. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Um, thanks for taking my call. Um, yeah, part of my comment was what you just said. I mean, Jay Bhattacharya, who was uh, suppressed by Fauci's emails, you know, it showed that they tried to suppress the story, the Great Barrington Declaration, which, I mean, I even signed it myself. I'm not a physician, but I, I read it. I believe it. Um, I knew that something was wrong years ago, and still the narrative was pushed. And, I mean, I think agencies like the CDC, NIH, the regulatory capture is just unbelievable in the pharmaceutical industry that needs to stop i mean it transcends over to the media and how they control people with the narrative um i think apologies need to be out there but more than that just accountability and we need to have uh these commissions to investigate and and take these people who who pushed what we've been through for the last three years and honestly just put them in prison because that's what they deserve Thanks for the call, Elliot. Uh, Mark, Western Burbs. Yeah, hi. I hope this comment will come across the way I mean it. Um, there's a more nefarious route here beyond just the, the COVID, and that's the labeling of dissenting or differing views as misinformation. Mm-hmm. And that constant repeating of misinformation, misinformation, is really um, undermining public debate and um You know, it's kind of the left's way to um, change our culture. You know, we travel from being a a society built on liberty and differing opinions to now that's misinformation. So now we can't use it. So, again, I don't I'm sorry, I don't have a more clear. No, that's very clear. That's very clear. Thanks for the call, Mark. That's very clear. And I completely agree with it. This is exactly what is done. If you label something misinformation like some Twitter minder or Facebook minder, then you don't have to address the substance of it. It's just it's out of bounds that that information is not allowed in the public arena. 
you know, it's uh, the the jury will disregard what they just heard. But they can't. The problem is it never gets an airing or it doesn't get the airing that it deserves. And that's what happened to so many of these equally credentialed, qualified, accomplished medical professionals. It is bad. That's that's what I mean. People should continue to be aghast at what happened during covid and what that says about where our country is and where it may be going that we could watch this occur and seemingly be helpless to do a whole lot about it other than people doing what they can to lend their voices to uh, the some of these individuals and uh, again that demands exactly what Bhattacharya is asking for as a starting point Greg Schomburg. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Dan, I was wondering if you could address the issue from the public standpoint as it stands right now. In other words, the people that have taken the jabs um, and given the background of increased blood clot uh, deaths that seem to be uh, anecdotal at this point, but pretty capable of being documented. Um, and then one other dimension of it, too. If you go to get a job right now, you have a mandate that you have to take the jab, and that seems like it's so incredibly stupid. So I was wondering if you could address how it would be that society deals with this issue, and is there any compensation back to the people um, that took the jab? Dan, yeah. you have 30 seconds. Thanks for the cookbook. Well, I mean, the, the short answer is no, not really, not at present, because the federal government indemnified the – uh, the drug companies yep. and then the federal government hides behind sovereign immunity with respect to any liability that they would have for a policy decision. So not fair. Right. I mean, I'm not into litigation, but anything that this is a lawsuit, I think that should come to fruition, but it's not going to happen. Well, that, I mean, that's something that perhaps, uh, again, a COVID truth commission could make some policy recommendations. So the drug companies are never afforded that sort of protection and the federal government never pulls one over on the American people like it did with respect to COVID and the vaccines. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer.
top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Amy, you wanted to update uh, the uh, situation with the Chicago police officer that was murdered last night. Yeah, the officer, a five-year veteran, married, and they're not releasing his name yet because of um, his relatives that live outside of the country. But he was responding to a domestic violence call. He and three other officers. He was shot in the head and in the leg. He has died. And the 18-year-old. Got it. We, you know, we knew that he had a gun charge leveled against him last year when he was 17. But listen to this. I'm just finding out that uh, last year when he was arrested, he was arrested. He was recruiting a minor to carry out a gang shooting, but true to form, had the lesser charge applied to him. So uh, we still, I'm we're still waiting for. He was on electronic monitoring, but waiting uh, to go to trial. But I, it's just Kim Fox has blood on her hands yet again. Uh, well, we'll uh, he was he was on electronic monitor, so he would have ostensibly had an ankle yeah. bracelet on when he was shot. Uh, you know, after he shot and killed that police officer. We're still waiting to find out if he was on if he removed it or what was going. But he he they didn't they gave him the lesser charge is what I'm saying. They gave him a yeah, gun charge instead of solicitation for murder. Well, and- we'll uh, <laughs> we'll update the situation as uh, more information becomes available. But somebody tweeted this out. This is a. A good example of why the city is what it is. Okay. You know, there's always a reason why things are the way they are. Sort of the, the Chesterton's fence fallacy. Um, a someone. I mean, it's just a random Chicagoan, but nonetheless, Quirabura Intuari is the person's name. Mm-hmm. Tweeting out what seemed like a hundred cop cars and three helicopters responding to an officer they knew was going to die. <gasps> effectively leaving the south side vulnerable for hours and completely cutting off the flow of traffic in order to flex their gang mentality. Congratulations, Chicago Police Department. You never disappoint displaying how much of a waste of taxpayer dollars you are. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. So I just, I mean, you, you know, you think these people don't exist or you think where is this defund the police silliness coming from? Uh, who actually believes this stuff? Who actually has these sort of ignorant attitudes toward police and, frankly, towards peace on the streets by extension? Oh, they're people. Oh, make no mistake about it. There are people, and they're a lot more in Chicago than you otherwise would believe. And in case you're just joining us, don't forget, Brandon Johnson wants to not hire more police officers. He wants to hire social workers to go to domestic violence calls. All right, we'll get back to uh, this story and, of course, update it as information becomes available, either the release of the police officer's name or information on the suspect in custody and in critical condition because he was shot after he shot and murdered that police officer. Um, Yesterday, Attorney General Merrick Garland reminded everyone with any sense that as painful as it is, we owe Mitch McConnell a debt of gratitude for preventing Merrick Garland from ascending to the Supreme Court. Garland was there to talk about the Department of Justice's performance. <laughs> what grade would you give yourself type of situation? But it was a specific incidents. And the larger question of two systems of justice based on your political persuasion that more and more people believe is actually the modus operandi of the Department of Justice and the FBI. Why do they believe that? Because it is. That's why. Because you should, unfortunately. 
um, a number of exchanges that are worth noting here, starting with one that didn't get a lot of attention from the D.C. press corps. We covered it here. Of course we did. But of course it didn't get a lot of attention. The FBI's targeting of Catholics who attend the Latin Mass because a left-wing hate organization that pretends to monitor hate groups, the Southern Poverty Law Center, said that some attendees of the traditional Latin Mass were associated with right-wing extremists. I, I mean, maybe some of them voted for Ron DeSantis in Florida or something, so, you know, that makes them right. a right-wing extremist, just as Paul Vallis. Uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri tagging A.G. Garland over this. And the the interesting thing is the agreement from Garland. But where does that agreement go is the question you should ask yourself as you listen. I notice a pattern, though. The FBI field office in Richmond on the 23rd of January of this year issued a memorandum in which they advocated for and I quote, the exploration of new avenues for tripwire and source development against traditionalist Catholics, it's their, their language, including those who favor the Latin mass. Attorney General, are you cultivating sources and spies in Latin mass parishes and other Catholic parishes around the country? Well, the Justice Department does not do that. It does not um, um, do investigations based on religion. I saw the document you have. What did you do about it? It's appalling. It's appalling. I'm in complete agreement with you. I understand that the FBI has withdrawn it, and it's now looking into how this could ever have happened. How did it happen? That's what they're looking into. But I'm totally in agreement with you. That document is appalling. I'll tell you how it happened. The, this memorandum, which is supposed to be intelligent, cites extensively the Southern Poverty Law Center, which goes on to identify all of these different Catholics as being part of hate groups. Is, is this how the FBI, under your direction and leadership, is, is this how they do their intelligence work? They look, they look at left-wing advocacy groups to target Catholics? Is this what's going on? I mean, clearly it is. How is this happening? The FBI is not targeting Catholics. And, and as I've said, this is an, uh, an inappropriate memorandum, and it doesn't reflect the methods that the FBI is supposed to be using. It should not be relying on any single organization without doing its own work. Let me just ask you, as my time expires here, a very direct question. How, how many informants do you have in Catholic churches across America? I don't know, and I don't believe we have any informants aimed at Catholic churches. We have a rule against uh, investigations based on First Amendment um, activity, and uh, uh, Catholic churches are obviously uh, First Amendment activity. Well, but I don't know the specific answer to that. You, you don't know the specifics of anything, it seems, but apparently on your watch, this Justice Department is targeting Catholics, targeting people of faith, specifically for their faith views. Yeah, not, not targeting Catholics. You know, we have a rule against yeah. investigations that would violate First Amendment protections. Oh, great. Oh, I believe yeah, you. Sure. The, well, why do you need a rule? That's why we have a First Amendment. Um, Good point. Uh, right. Not targeting Catholics, not targeting parents, not targeting pro-lifers. It just happens that the focus is always on these people. So it turns out, it seems to me that um, while the FBI is busily taking the lead from Southern Poverty Law Center about hate groups, 
it's become a hate group itself. Seems like it's the FBI that is beset by extremism. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636DA, turnkey.pro text line. And, you know, violence and insurrection and protecting our democracy and all those phrases that are repeated by the trained Marxists of uh, the day. They mean, those phrases mean nothing to them as they demonstrate through their conduct. You want to talk about violence? Violence in the form of chilling people's religious freedom, their freedom of thought, their freedom of speech. Is that violence any less damaging to an individual's life or to the body politic, to the future of our country, than guys who get in a fistfight on the street? What, what what I'm sorry. What what is that? I have no idea. Okay. Apparently we're being hacked. Uh that continued. Uh Josh Howley continued with AG Garland because he had something else to say in his limited time. And that was about the raid on Mark Hauk's house. Oh yes, remind people who Mark Hauk, the um pro-life activists, prays outside of abortion mills in Philadelphia, was there outside of an abortion mill with his son, uh, one of the Planned Parenthood ghouls that escorts women into their mills, uh, was getting in the face of Mark Hawk's son, his like 12-year-old son, and so Howe came over and said, hey, you talk to me, you don't talk to my son. And Holly had a big, big blown-up picture of him and his family. And the so. guy persisted, and he wouldn't back off, so how pushed him off his son. Local prosecutors declined to, declined to prosecute the case, to press charge, yeah, to, to, to file to didn't file any there. criminal charges against him. Nope. Um, and when the feds picked up an investigation into the case, this is important, his attorney said, well, if you're going to charge our client, he will surrender himself. Just let us know. But that wasn't good enough. They brought in, you know, the amphibious vehicles and the choppers and the SUVs, dr- guns drawn at his rural Pennsylvania home. The district attorney declines to prosecute. The private suits dismissed. You use an unbelievable show of force with guns that I just note liberals usually decry. We're supposed to hate long, long guns and assault-style weapons. You're happy to deploy them against Catholics and innocent children. Happy to. And then you haul them into court, and a jury acquits him in one hour. I just suggest to you that that is a disgraceful performance by your Justice Department and a disgraceful use of resources. Christopher Ray was asked about the same raid. In his interview with Brett Baer the other day. Oh, yeah. What did he say? Where he was, uh, you know, oh, of course, we always believed it was the lab leak. Yeah. Of course, we, that was our position from uh, the beginning. We just couldn't tell anybody. Chris Ray said this about the same incident that Howley commented on. That decision to use that force, was that by the book? So there's a whole lot of things that goes into the judgment about what is the way to conduct uh, arrests safely and securely that are made, I think, appropriately by the career agents on the ground who have the closest visibility to the circumstances. Mm-hmm. Well, here's it's one of two things, uh, Director Ray and A.G. Garland. 
and to the general public because we're supposed to believe a few bad apples at the top. It's a leadership problem, but, you know, the rank and file are all good agents trying to enforce the law and protect people and so on Mm. and so forth. Remember, yeah, Republicans get raided, Democrats get searched. Well, Christopher Wray, so number one, Brett Baer should have followed up with, well, wait a second, why was an arrest needed at all? You had the attorney saying he would surrender. This is a relatively minor case. This is not a uh, habitual violent offender. His attorneys are saying he will surrender, and yet still they persisted. So what does that say either about you as the director or about those experienced agents on the ground who you're deferring to, allegedly? The same experienced agents on the ground that wrote the memo out of Richmond targeting Catholics who go to Latin Mass. The same experienced agents on the ground working in consultation with the Department of Justice to monitor and target parents who speak out against uh, critical race theory curriculum at their school board meeting. I mean, are you serious? And if you think those answers you've heard so far strain the bounds of credulity, well, you haven't heard anything else, anything yet from Merrick Garland. Mike Lee, senator from Utah, following up on this whole line of inquiry, asking about those pregnancy care centers, Catholic churches that have been firebombed, vandalized, threats made. Where are the prosecutions of people responsible for those hateful, violent acts as compared to your prosecutions of people who violate, allegedly violate the FACE Act at abortion mills? In 2022, and for the first couple of months of 2023, DOJ has announced charges against 34 individuals for blocking access to or vandalizing abortion clinics. And there have been over 81 reported attacks on pregnancy centers, 130 attacks on Catholic churches since the leak of the Dobbs decision, and only two individuals have been charged. So how do you explain this disparity? Uh... Uh, by reference to anything other than politicization of what's happening there. The FACE Act applies equally to uh, efforts to um, uh, damage, uh, blockade uh, um, 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 clinics, whether a pregnant uh, uh, resource, uh, whether they are a pregnancy resource center uh, or whether they are an abortion center. It applies equally in both cases, and we apply the law equally. Um, I will say you are quite right. There are many more prosecutions with respect uh, to the um, um, blocking of the uh, um, of the abortion centers, but that is generally because they are those actions are taken in, uh, with photography at the time um, uh, during the daylight, and uh, seeing the person who did it is uh, quite easy. Um, the, those who are attacking the pregnancy resources centers. Uh, which is a horrid thing to do, are doing this at night um, in the dark. We have put full resources on this. Uh, we have uh, uh, asked, uh, put uh, um, uh, rewards out for this. Um, the Justice Department and the FBI have made uh, outreach to Catholic um, and other uh, uh, organizations. i got to tell you, they are eating him alive, and his stammering is not helping. You can't catch criminals who commit acts of violence at night? What? Uh, Hello? 
Uh, heads up, anybody who's interested in committing federal crimes, don't do it Shh. during the day. Do it at night. They won't at see night, you. at night, their hands are tied over at FBI. You know, it's it's difficult to figure this out too when it's some of the uh, places that have been vandalized. Uh, they leave their marker like Jane's Revenge. Uh, is there an uh, ongoing yeah. investigation? Yeah, I wonder into, who did it. <laughs> investigation into Jane's Revenge. Uh, this an inscrutable case. This is almost like an episode of Naked Gun. Like, uh-huh. who could have done this? I don't know. The people protesting out of uh, outside of Brett Kavanaugh's house. The uh, people like the guy that uh, had a assassination plot that was actually arrested. Not any thanks to the FBI. Um, you know, happened to be uh, outside seeing this guy fumbling around. This the sister called it in, right? Right. Um, so, uh, yeah. I mean, th- this is literally his position. We've made no progress on hundreds of hate crimes, including where an organization has left their brand because they're committing these acts of violence at night. That should inspire a lot of confidence to the FBI. So when uh, they, he said, did A.G. Garland, you know, you're quite right, Senator Lee, there have been a disproportionate or a, a very different number of prosecutions under the FACE Act for people violating the FACE Act allegedly when they're at an abortion clinic as opposed to when they're at a pregnancy care center. Um, right. Because the FACE Act equally applies, but that's in theory. In practice, we have other priorities, don't we? Got a great text message on our turnkey depro text line. We have cartels at the border and the FBI is targeting Catholics. Latin mass. Yeah. Yeah. Latin mass. You know, Latin mass is a gateway mass to right wing extremism. Next, you know, per this uh, report out of Britain, they're going to be targeting people who read 1984 as they look around and it's 1984. I know. Clay and Wheeling. Good morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, you mentioned Naked Gun, Leslie Nielsen. I'm 29 years old, and Leslie Nielsen is probably one of my favorite actors, if not Airplane is my, one of my favorite movies of all time. I, the comedy is just fantastic, and it, it is uh, almost copycat image of the FBI today. It's ridiculous, these people. Uh, my original point is I wish Holly just kind of goes, you know what, I'm fed up with this. I've had enough of these people. This, I do this day in and day out. You're a communist and a traitor, a treasonist. That's what these people are. That's what they really are at the end of the day. They are bipartisan, or uh, excuse me, they are completely partisan on one side. They do not care about the other side, and they constantly attack Catholics. It's a disgusting act, and Holly should call them out for it. Thanks, guys. Thanks for the call, Clay. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Connect with Dan and Amy on the AM560 The Answer mobile app. Just text the word APP to 64636 to download the app today. If you're looking for the latest news, insight into what it means, and the sharpest opinion, there's only one station in Chicago where you can turn, and it's this one. We're AM560 The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Uh, time to update the activities of the LGBTQIA plus the Lavender Bund uh, as the trans takeover continues unabated. Uh, we could go from the North Shore to the state of Maine to uh, the Isle of Man. Spin the globe. Uh, where would you like to start? Let's start with the North Shore. You start with the North Shore? Yeah, let's start local. Okay, we can start with the North Shore. Okay. Uh, this is uh, District 36 in 
Juanatka. Juanatka. Juanatka School District 36. Let's. We need some easy listening sort of music. Justin? To talk about the patrician Juanatka School District 36. It turns out up in Juanatka. Juanatka? That they have been. Focused on sexualizing kindergartners for the last several years through the uh, oh, no. book offerings. Oh, yeah. A seven of uh, this new turn neighbors on the job on this one. Seven of the nine books selected for ki- kindergartners do, in fact, feature same sex couples. <gasps> Six are described and labeled as LGBT offerings. Um, although uh, they write uh, new turn neighbors in summary here because there's a, the school district is trying to cover their behinds. It's about the only time they want behinds covered based on the curriculum. Uh, uh, Although Illinois standards include recognizing that families vary, and the goal of D36's Who Am I in My Family unit is to recognize there are different kinds of families, neither requires that the family unit be based predominantly on LGBT books or even identify specific books to be read. And they're citing the actual state standard here as uh, left as it is. The uh, superintendent in Juanatka, District 36, she says uh, that District 36 does not teach sex ed to kindergartners. This is right. This is the one of the two arguments. Always. It's critical race theory. We don't teach it. Oh, right. A sex education, we don't teach it. But if we do, it's completely appropriate. <laughs> this is the argument you get. We don't do it, but if we did, it would be perfectly okay. Uh-huh. And that's sort of what you get here. Um, there's a book, uh, however, they don't teach sex ed. Okay. Oh, yeah, right. No, um, yeah, Love Makes a Family is one of the books that features two men in bed, one with a beard and breasts. Oh. Um, where do you, hey, book, where do you get those? <laughs> uh, another, right. That's not sex ed. No, that's not Another sex. book, And Tango Makes Three. No. That's the name of the book. Is that a, depicts, about a thruple? Depicts two gay male penguins, including d- two gay male penguins hatching and raising a baby. I think I've read that somewhere. Yeah. Um, the uh, Nutra Neighbors uh, Org uh, writes, there are material differences between what the superintendent there claimed at the board meeting and what district kindergarten teachers are telling parents, including how these books were selected, whether these books are in each kindergarten classroom, they are, and whether or not to and to what extent uh, books are being used to teach kindergartners about families. And here is what they want. These these uh, insurrectionists up in the North Shore. They want to know. They want to know what kindergarten children are being taught, and they want to know the material that's being used to teach them. That's outrageous, isn't it? <laughs> it's hateful. That's where it's at. Parents' right to know. Oh, it may say so in statute. But in operation, parents subordinated to the Lavender Bunn's agenda for their kids. Gosh, don't you remember kindergarten? You would just learn how to color in the lines and learn how to count to 10. And just yep, learned, nice. about, learned about bearded men with breasts. Yep, Didn't I remember. see that coming. Didn't, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, since we're uh, in the mainland here, let's go from Winnetka. 
to Maine, the state of Maine. Here's 11-year-old Knox Zajac speaking up at a school board meeting about a book in his class. Oh, yes. He's a sixth grader. The book is Nick and Charlie, and he was good enough to read a passage so all could enjoy it. If you're in the boardroom while young Knox is reading from the book Nick and Charlie, I'm sure you'd be squirming as most of the parents in the background while he's reading are. This book was on a stand. I'd like to read you a page. My back over my hips as I ask if we should take off, take our clothes off. And he's saying yes before I finish my sentence. He's pulling off my t-shirt, laughing when I can't undo his shirt buttons. He's undoing my belt. I'm reaching into his bedside drawer for a condom. We're kissing again. We're rolling over. Obviously, you can see where this is going. I don't know if it's because we're feeling especially emotional or just tired. Or these past couple of weeks have been too much. But this reminds me so much of the first time we had sex. We were both terrified. And the whole thing was kind of terrible because we didn't know what we were doing. But it was good too. So good. Because we were a mess of emotions. And we were scared and excited. And everything felt new. So this sort of thing, this sort of feels like that. Nick touches me like he's scared that any minute. Now, this book was at my middle school, and it was on a stand. When I rented it out to show my dad it, uh, the librarian asked if I wanted more and if I wanted a graphic novel version. <laughs> if you like that, boy, do I have something else Come for on you. over here, kid. Look at this. Oh, you know, gross. You, uh, I'm, here's the thing I'm most afraid of. What? I'm most afraid of that grammar schools in America are going to put all the erotic bookstores out of business. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where's the erotic bookstore lobby? Mm. Where are all the sex shops to oh. protesting? Stay out of our lane. You're killing our businesses. Who needs to go to some expressway off-ramp in, in some rural area for this sort of erotica? Just go to your kid's grammar school. Right. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 646-36-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Uh, there's a, uh, another 11 year old like not, uh, Knox Ajax from Maine. Uh, he, uh, lives over in the Isle of Man. What's... Uh, this is, you know, small Island, bit of a corporate tax haven off the, in the Irish Sea between UK and Ireland. Okay. It's only like 85,000 people there. Uh, it's a place I've considered moving. Uh, oh, really? More to so the every Isle day. Of Man? Yeah, at least for the summers. Wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah. Sounds charming. Very rustic. You could read um, all anyway. your books there. Yeah, it's pre- precisely. And uh, I, and I can go to the local school district to get my erotica. There you go. You don't have to go to the adult book section. Hey, has anybody seen an 11-year-old? I'd like to get some porn. <laughs> anybody from, anybody know anybody from the local school district? Get my hands on some porn. Um, yeah. It uh, turns out an 11-year-old was kicked out of class at uh, this school on the Isle of Man. And, and I, I don't think there's many for arguing with a trans teacher. Right. You heard me right about the number of genders. And it uh, gets worse from there. Here's the story. Gender ideologies have also been included in the classroom discussions. And in one school, this was led by a drag queen. They were divided into three groups. The 
first group I'll start with had um, a drag queen come in and the drag queen asked the question, how many genders are there? The children responded dutifully, there's two. The drag queen said, no, there isn't two, there's over 70, there's 73. One 11 year old child got very upset by that and turned around and said, no, there's not, there's only two. The drag queen unfortunately then responded with, you have upset me, get out and threw this child out of the class. The next group was then taught about sex change operations. They were shown artificial penises and they were then shown a skin graft taken from a girl's arm to use to put onto the artificial penis. Ew. The third group, they were taught oral and anal sex. Ah. And a lot of the children are just too traumatised to even talk to their parents. And even when other friends have phoned up saying, they just go, I can't talk about it. Just not talking about it. So these are 11-year-old kids? These are 11-year-old children. Year seven. Year seven. You know, when I was growing up, we didn't learn about artificial penises until like late in the seventh grade. I mean, so I'm they're, they're really so starting them early, aren't they? Well, that's so grotesque, and that is none of their business. And of course, they're going to confuse the kids. But the fact that they kicked out the kid who said, "No, there's not seventy-three genders. There's two. You've got to leave." And I can imagine Se- how like seventy seventy-three. Drag queen. Can, could you name seventy-three? By the way, I do I have a. Name- I, I have a gender update for you. I we we're, we I want to settle the debate between paraboy and demi boy that's raging right now. Oh yeah. So we'll, we'll settle that momentarily. Um, I can't that, name four genders. Well, no, um, I, I don't well, know. Seventy three. You, you think about it. You know, come up with some uh, of your own at home. It's fun. Um, more on the uh, schools at the Isle of Man on the Isle of Man, but basically no different than a Chicago suburb. It sounds like. Uh, here's the school, or, or Francis Parker, an elite private school in Chicago. Uh, here is the uh, little bit uh, background on the school system's English curriculum. You can understand why a drag queen is at the head of the class, if you will. Some of the things on the English curriculum are interesting. Um, so there's a whole bit on fisting and fisting. basically how fisting. to do it safely. Mm-hmm. And with lube, yeah, well, and you don't do that right. I just stand astounded. There's also fetishes were on that, weren't they? Fetishes were on that as well. Yeah, that was there too. And this is again being aimed at year seven, or is no. this higher up no, no, in no, school? No. I, what um, age is this being taught to? This isn't being taught. It hasn't said in the document what age that should be taught to. Um, it is basically saying that these things should be talked about in school. The Manx curriculum is based on the Scottish model, which has also faced severe criticism. Uh, There was one teacher that spoke to me, um, and she was very uncomfortable with what she had to do. So, bearing in mind she's young, she's pretty, um, she had to go into a group of boys and girls and teach them how to masturbate. And what age are these kids? Twelve. So again, year seven, year seven, year eight. Year seven, year eight, yeah. She had to go and teach them. And she's uncomfortable doing it. They're uncomfortable doing it. Um, Understandably. And there was another kind of like story that I heard from parents that um, there was one teacher that walked into the classroom and said, right, I have to teach you this. I think it's wrong. I don't think you're ready for it. So I want you to sit there and colour in your books 
and I'll stand at the front of the class and I will teach this lesson because I have to teach this lesson. But please don't listen to me. They're not totalitarian re-education camps. Um, anybody see anything wrong with a teacher teaching a bunch of 12-year-old girls and boys in a classroom how to masturbate? I mean, when did that become verboten, right? Three one two six four two five six zero zero turnkey dot pro answer line. You can also text us at six four six three six type in DA. Then a quick comment. I mean, I guess that's the a great predicate question. How committed are you to the lavender boons agenda? Are, I mean, are you so committed that you would uh, submit your daughter or son in the seventh grade to be in a co-ed environment? in a classroom, in an educational setting, and have the teacher teach all the kids how to masturbate. Because if you're not on board for that, then you're just not an ally. You know but if I mean? you did that outside of the classroom, you'd be arrested. Think about that. I mean, that's how grotesque it is. Well, you know, maybe we like have if to if they rewrite... took it outside, you're like, oh, yeah, you're, yeah. You're... Well, we got to rewrite some of the laws to accommodate the Lavender Boone's agenda. We want to be allies, don't we? I mean, are you on board or not? Right? Brian St. John. Hey, good morning, guys. So uh, I was going to call and talk about that. Nick and Charlie, I think that's Heartstoppers, and that's in uh, all the public libraries, and it's also a show on Netflix. And the opening scene in episode one of that show is the two Nick and Charlie making out. So that's their agenda there. Um, In terms of my kids, my daughter is six, my son is three. I've been pounding in their heads since as long as they've been born that there are two genders, and anyone that tells them otherwise, they need to run far away. So uh, they get annoyed with me, but... <laughs> All right, we well, you better, tell them, you better not send them to the Isle of Man for a semester abroad, I'll tell you that. Thank uh, you for the call, Brian. Robert Bloomingdale. Hey, guys, uh, that segment you just had with that lady, was that's a wow. You know, in my personal opinion, that you got to really watch, especially in these school board elections this year, yeah. Who you're going to put in there, do your homework on them. And as far as I'm concerned, any teacher, principal, or superintendent that promotes this kind of garbage should be fired and put your kids in parochial school. What do you think? Uh, thanks for the call, Robert. Yeah, although you got to check the parochial schools, too, because some of them have given over to the, the leftist mobs as well, unfortunately. Uh, Larry Elmhurst. Hey, good morning. Hey, two quick points. Um First of all, I think the teachers are, are pushing this because 80% of the teachers, I believe, are child molesters to begin with. Well, well uh, come on, 80%, let, let's not throw well, out statistics, but go ahead. Made up statistics, but go ahead. Yeah, and um, I forgot what I was the other point I was going to say, but it's you, you can. Oh no, I know what it. You can get kicked out of, for wearing a Trump shirt or a Make America Great, but you can sit there and read a book about two guys biting a pillow. It's sickening. Thanks for the color. Well, of course, I mean, a MAGA, MAGA oh, wear, that's that's, uh, that's hateful. Treason. This is inclusive, you see. Uh, Frank, Arlington Heights. supposed to be all in. Will Wheaton lives in Met. <laughs> I believe I, I believe, uh, I believe he does live in Met. You know, Will Wheaton, the one who eats wheat thins and, and cool whip, I think he lives in Met. Great Stewie impersonation, but- yes. It's better, actually. It's early in the morning for it. Um, actually, just want to make a comment. You know, you said the Isle of Man was where this is happening. I thought you said the Isle of Wight first. I was going to be very upset about that because I want to visit the Isle of Wight, which is south of England there. And then um, 
Ireland, too. I haven't been there yet. At least Ireland is safe since St. Patrick. You know, he banned snakes from that in, what, the year 300, 400 A.D.? So, at least Ireland's safe. Uh, I don't know how safe Ireland is, but okay. Thanks for the call, Frank. Dirk Steger. Good morning. I just got a quick comment. Good morning, guys. Just I was just wondering, when did any kid ever have to be taught how to masturbate? <laughs> okay. All right. All right, Dirk. Yeah, but um, a little aggressive. Guys. Whatever. What, okay. The truth of that, notwithstanding, um, how do you feel about uh, him or her being taught by their teacher in a seventh grade classroom? Does that make you uncomfortable at all, or is allyship more important? Dan and Amy, Chicago's morning answer. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's morning answer on AM five sixty. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Perhaps one of the most uh, important commentaries on COVID over the last three years wasn't a commentary at all. Just a montage just a montage of sponsorships. A little reminder. It is brought to you by Pfizer. CBS Health Watch sponsored by Pfizer. Anderson Cooper 360. Brought to you by Pfizer. ABC News Nightline. Brought to you by Pfizer. Making a difference. Brought to you by Pfizer. CNN Tonight. Brought to you by Pfizer. Pfizer. Early start. Brought to you by Pfizer. Friday night on Aaron Burnett out front. Brought to you by Pfizer. Pfizer. This week with George Stephanopoulos is brought to you by Pfizer. This weather report brought to you by Pfizer. Today's countdown to the royal wedding is brought to you by Pfizer. And now a CBS Sports update brought to you by Pfizer. Meet the press. Data download. Brought to you by Pfizer. Pfizer. This portion of CBS This Morning, sponsored by Pfizer. On how to find the hidden sugars in the American family diet, sponsored by Pfizer. Dan and Amy, not brought to you by Pfizer. Professor Martin Kaldorf, professor of medicine at Harvard University on leave, fellow of the, Ameri- uh, of the Academy for Science and Freedom, which is a Hillsdale College initiative to restore integrity and trust in science and public health. That's a big job. Uh, none of that brought to you by Pfizer either. Dr. Malton Kaldorf, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good morning. Great to be with you. So, you know, uh, we want to get to the testimony that you and your colleagues, Dr. Jay and Dr. Marty, presented uh, at the House Select Committee. But um, the that's not talked about enough, it seems to me. We talk about um, government uh, COVID policies. We talk about uh Fauci and NIH and CDC. Uh, we um, uh, talk about what the public health and local officials did, but not enough. And when, it, particularly when it comes to squelching dissent, social media, but not just corporate media. Corporate media bought and paid for by drug companies, and what kind of impact that had at narrowing the discussion on all things COVID as Scott Gottlieb is the face of COVID explanations for Face the Nation and uh, uh, Osterholm is for Meet the Press and so on and so forth. What's your take on that? Well, I think if we want to have trust in drugs and vaccine, it's important to have independent 
uh, evaluation of those drugs and vaccines. Those people who are not affiliated with uh, uh, drug companies and with from media who is not affiliated with drug companies. And I mean, you know, it's not that this requires a lot of um, uh, deep thinking, but I mean, you you hear that montage and Pfizer's influence. Uh, and again, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb on the board of Pfizer, which he disclosed, but nonetheless, he's on the board. Um, that has to have an influence on how these discussions are mediated on what kind of the angle of the coverage on all things COVID, don't you think? Uh, I think so. And maybe that's one of the explanations why uh, this absurdity during the last three years where natural immunity, that is immunity after having had COVID, has been uh, dismissed. It's something that we have known about uh, for two and a half thousand years since the Athenian plague in 430 BC. And suddenly three years ago, we did not know about it anymore. And now we, it's, it's acknowledged again. So uh, uh, I mean, if, if you haven't had COVID, then, uh, or if you haven't had a disease, then a vaccine can be very important to protect you. But if you've had what is COVID, if you had measles, then uh, you don't need. Uh, then you have already had immunity that's that's uh, that's better than the immunity from the vaccine. But why then do you think the government keeps pushing get your booster? They're even you know sending notifications to me about my children who have not gotten a third or fourth booster, and I I don't intend to do that because they've also had COVID. But why? What is in it for the government and Pfizer? Uh, well, for Pfizer, it's obviously uh, they they make more money the more vaccines they sell. Uh, so for them, it's pretty clear. But you no, know, it's very surprising uh, that they are pushing like vaccine man. Like also, universities are pushing vaccine mandates on students who've already had COVID. And even if they haven't had COVID, the risk of uh, uh, of uh, serious consequences from COVID is minuscule for uh, for children and young adults. Uh, it's a very serious disease for older people, but not for young people. It's more than a, anybody can get COVID, but there's more than a thousandfold different in risk of mortality depending on your age. Uh, so you and uh, your colleagues that testified the other day are calling for essentially a COVID truth commission. And Dr. Bhattacharya has, uh, has written some op-eds recently about it as well and explaining why. He said uh, on Tuesday, 80 pages of questions that have that uh, he and I, I assume it with in working with you guys, you, you and others have put together that would frame some of the scientific inquiry that could be done by a COVID truth commission. Um, number one, why is this important in your mind? And number two, what are sort of some of the top line important questions that need to be publicly answered and that haven't been sufficiently to date? Yeah, so I think from a public health perspective, this was the biggest public health mistakes in history, how we treated this pandemic. And there are two basic uh, problems with what we did. One was we didn't protect older Americans sufficiently. The older Americans have a high risk of dying from COVID, and many did die from COVID. And uh, some deaths are unavoidable, but uh, we could have saved many of those lives if we had um, proper protection of older uh, Americans who are in the 70s, uh, 80s, and 90s, and even some in the 60s. Uh, so that was one big failure that we didn't properly protect. Is that, is that we protected the laptop class, so the people, young, uh, 
uh, young professionals in their 30s and 40s who could work from home and who had uh, their uh, pizza delivered uh, or their food delivered from restaurants by uh, older people working there uh, in the working class. So uh, that's one huge failure that we didn't properly protect older Americans. Uh, the other one failure is that we the lockdowns, which had very limited effect or no effect on on uh, preventing uh, COVID, uh, some of it postponed it a little bit, dragging it out for longer. But, uh, for example, school closures, uh, we should never have closed the schools. And that had det- uh, enormously detrimental effects on uh, children. Uh, schools are important for children, and we know that. And th- these are long-term consequences that we're going to, they're going to live with uh, throughout their lives. That they they lost uh, a year in some in some places in the U.S. Uh, almost two years of education. Also, we uh, didn't we uh, the number of doctor's visits went down uh, uh, during the pandemic because uh, uh, people didn't dare to go to the hospital or they wasn't available. So many people missed their cancer screening or their cancer treatment or their diabetic treatment cardiovascular disease outcomes have been worsened and uh, the mental health has deteriorated. And those things are not necessarily that leads to death immediately, but uh, let's say a woman who didn't get their search, her cervical cancer screening might now die next year instead of living another 15 to 20 years. So it, it seems to me that part of the argument for the Truth Commission is to get outside of uh, everybody's echo chamber. So the, what you just recounted has been recounted by you previously and others, um, and there's a lot of substantiation to support the claims that you made. But it's not being heard uh, except in certain circles. And if you have a bipartisan commission that's covered by the D.C. press corps, then you're going to have exchanges between experts like yourself and Dr. J and Dr. Marty and others. And then also uh, maybe CDC people, maybe Tony Fauci, ma- ma- other po- other people, politicians in the uh, the, in the back and forth of Q&A that will have different opinions. But then the American people can hear the arguments and the evidence side by side to make a determination as to who is providing a more compelling case as to po- good policy choices versus bad policy choices. And the only way that can happen is if People who disagree are in the same room and they're hashing it out, which is basically what the Great Barrington Declaration called for as well, which is scientific inquiry. Let's let's get together. Let's debate these issues. Let's measure twice and cut once and so on and so forth. Is that a a real key overriding benefit of of a truth commission that you're calling for? Exactly. That's exactly what the truth commission has to do. And uh, so, so. For example, so if an airplane crashes, we have an investigation uh, what went wrong so that we make sure that it doesn't happen again. Uh, so uh, this is sort of a standard procedure we do when something was, when it goes badly wrong to make sure that we understand what went wrong so that we don't keep repeating the same mistakes uh, again and again. All right, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play uh, devil's advocate here. So I'm gonna I'm gonna do some prep for you for the Truth Commission. Okay, you're okay. a witness, and I'm a member of Congress. All right, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to shed about 60 IQ points to be a member of Congress to play this role, but I think I can do it. Um, all right, so uh, you've been criticized. The position of the Great Barrington Declaration has been criticized substantively. For example, there was a paper done by economist Alex Tabarak and Marcus Bjorkheim. Uh, called COVID in the Nursing Homes, the U.S. Experience, and it addresses this issue that you and others argued for, the focus protection argument. And they basically conclude that the best 
quality nursing homes had no better outcomes than the lesser quality nursing homes. They write, the United States did focus protection. Visits to nursing homes were stopped and residents and staff were tested. What the U.S. did was focus protection and lockdowns and masking, and we still had a tremendous death toll in the nursing homes. Focus protection without community controls would have led to more deaths, both in nursing homes and in the larger community. And then whether that was a reasonable trade-off is a different question. But the idea that focus protection, particularly in nursing homes, would have improved outcomes and prevented deaths, they argue that there's no evidence to support that. We could have done a lot more to protect nursing homes. Uh, I mean, the and it's not just not sending uh, uh, COVID patients from hospitals back to nursing homes uh, who are infected and then infect others. That was completely criminal. That killed a lot of people. But in addition to that, we, sh- we should have had much less staff rotation in nursing homes because uh, <clears throat> staff, uh, the, the more patients that one staff, uh, the more staff a patient is exposed to, the more higher risk is to be infected. Uh, there was some testing in nursing homes uh, when uh, we tests became available, but it was not sufficient. It's not enough to test uh, uh, once once a week. We should have tested staff every day. And instead of doing uh, extensive testing in nursing homes, we were testing university uh, students and colleges who we did not need uh, to test. They were asymptomatic, and uh, that was a complete waste of resources. Uh, so... Uh, uh, Another thing is that uh, we should have hired uh, nursing home staff that had already had COVID because they had immunity, so they are the least likely to spread to others. But instead of hiring people with natural immunity who had COVID, recovered from COVID in, into nursing homes and hospitals, we were firing, uh, firing them for not being vaccinated, even though they had better immunity than the vaccinated. So those are just a few examples of how we could have better protected nursing home residents. Yeah, that's really interesting, right? It's the daisy chain that people don't think of, the secondary effects. So because you start from this false premise, you won't admit what you know to be true, that natural immunity provides better protection both for the person and for the public. Then you made bad decisions that led to worse outcomes for the public. That I mean, that those are the kinds of you know, uh, drill downs that the public, I think, needs to hear, which is why I obviously am so supportive of this Truth Commission idea you guys have put forward. Um, one, uh, the, the, uh, the, the news this week, the predominant news, not the only news on the topic, but the predominant news was, of course, the Department of Energy report based on new intelligence. We believe it was a lab leak. And uh, your colleague, Dr. Marty Makari, basically said, look, this was a no brainer. Uh, they knew it from the beginning. The top virologist told Tony Fauci that and then they recanted and got nine million dollars in NIH funding. And so part of this, it seems, too, it's not just corruption in terms of uh, the big pharma uh, gaining regulatory control over the regulators and the media through, well, underwriting. It's also the corruption within public health itself in terms of malleable scientific conclusions based on grant funding. Yeah, so Anthony Fauci sits on the biggest pile of infectious disease research money in the world that he controls. Uh, or he, he used to control it uh, until a few months ago when he stepped down as the director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. So it's very difficult for uh, infectious disease scientists to contradict him. So if he says things, then it takes uh, some uh, uh, bravery to actually contradict him. 
And the sad thing is that he is a lab scientist, so his knowledge of public health is actually very limited. So he focused everything on COVID, ignoring cancer, cardiovascular disease, and mental health, which has deteriorated during these lockdowns. So it's uh, so uh, the clip that you played about the media being in the uh, in the hands of uh, on uh, of Pfizer uh, within the scientific community. Uh, they depend on uh, funding from uh, Anthony Fauci and NIH and NIAID, uh, as well as uh, they get some funding from uh, from little companies as well. Yeah. So there again, uh, a truth commission that could highlight this may prompt some structural changes in terms of how the federal government does grant funding rather than concentrating the power uh, and the money in the hands of so few. Um, that might be a, an important topic of discussion as well. So many. Martin Kaldorf is a professor of medicine at Harvard on leave. He's a fellow of the Academy for Science and Freedom, which is a Hillsdale College initiative to restore integrity and trust in science and public health. Professor Martin Kaldorf, thanks so much for joining us, and along with Dr. Jay and and Dr. Macri and Sunetra Gupta and many, many others. But uh, you guys took a lot of hits to just call, try and call balls and strikes and ask uh substantive questions and offer substantive critiques and we we really appreciate what you did because we know uh the hammering that you guys took so thank you so much for everything you've done well thank you for having me and thank you for your kind words thank you and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line this is chicago's morning answer your show keeps me alive during the week there's nobody i'd rather listen to between five and nine in the morning than you guys on am 560 the answer Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So here's what happened in Gage Park on the southwest side yesterday late afternoon when police responded to a domestic. 822 USA, no citywide person with a gun. 5258 South Spalding. Caller says the boyfriend has the gun and is chasing her, hung up, nothing further. No six is clear. Eight twenty two update. All right, we got a second call stating that the parents were having a loud argument and saw a man throw the phone outside the house. Nothing further. Ten four. Eight two two has one running. Eight two two has one running. Can I get another car? Eight two two is at fifty two fifty eight South Valley. Yeah, keep talking. Got one running out. Got a description. Eight two two, you got a description. He just jumped the fence. He's uh, back on. He's back on Spalding. Male jumps the fence, back on falling. Do we have a description? Okay, you got cut out. All I heard was gray joggers. What else? Black hoodie, gray, gray joggers. Uh, ran down Spalding. Uh, there's a high place in the which direction. All right, so we got a male Hispanic, gray joggers, black sweater. Once again, 822 is at 5258 South Falling for a person with a gun ticket. 
So two minutes after they get a call that there's a guy chasing a woman with a gun, they're up close and personal in a firefight that takes the life of a Chicago police officer and uh, uh, police wound the suspect who shot at police, killed the police officer, and he's in critical condition at Mount Sinai. And the officer, his name has just been released, Officer Andreas Vasquez Lazo, 32 years old. From the Marquette Park neighborhood. Five years on the force, right? Yes. That's what we understand. And he had a bright future, according to, you know, everyone, you know, that he was a great officer and he was rising and going to be rising in the ranks. And we heard from a caller whose daughter knows him, is on the force, knows him, that he had a five-year-old daughter. That's what it's like in Chicago these days. And the person who did it, well, the 18-year-old suspect who was also shot when the officers shot him, he's at Mount Sinai. He, uh, he should have been behind bars. Last year, he was uh, charged with a gun charge when he was just 17. But the truth behind that story is he was recruiting a minor to carry out a gang shooting when they were uh, taken into custody. And then, of course, whoever the Cook County Assistant State's Attorney was, they gave him the lesser charge of the gun charge applied to him. For more on this and uh, discussion of the prospects for public safety in the city of Chicago, we're pleased to be joined by former Chicago police superintendent and former mayoral candidate, Gary McCarthy. Gary, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, guys. That's very hard to listen to. It is very hard to listen to. This is why people need to hear it, uh, understand the job that police do, and um, understand the state of the city, it would seem to me. Um, and, and, and frankly, some of the reaction from some residents tells you how far gone the city is, at least in the minds of some people. Uh, it's pretty disconcerting. But but your reaction first to the officer, I want to give you the opportunity to speak to the uh, officer who was killed on the, in the line of duty and and uh, you know, where you think the state of the Chicago Police Department is. Oh, it's horrible. It's horrible. Um you know, I'm I'm struck by how calm that female officer was putting over the the pursuit. Um, you know, unfortunately, 41 years of policing. Um, I've been through this before. It's happened. It happens, unfortunately, more frequently than people realize. But I think that the conditions that have been created, <clears throat> not just in Chicago but across the country, really are playing into what's happening today. It was a very rare occasion, even though it did happen, uh, that police officers got shot when I was a police officer from the early 80s uh, into the early 90s. And the 90s is when it started to get a little crazy. But the anti-police sentiment in this country right now is clearly contributing to what's happening here. And the tragedy of losing a father um, at five years old can't be understated. Uh, can't be overstated, I should say. And it, it, what people should 
actually realizes that what's been created in Chicago today has it that those officers probably are going to be subject to discipline for violating the foot pursuit policy. Oh, I'd love to see that. I'd love to see, I I'd dare love to see disciplinary uh, action. Well, don't you, don't, you, don't you remember that Copa actually charged Ella yeah. French after she was dead? I mean, <laughs> that's what we've created here. And, you know, it, it, it's done on purpose. I don't, I don't know if you guys saw the article that the, the guest column that I did for John Cass yeah. last week. Mm-hmm. But just talking about the conditions that have been created and taking the wrong medicine for what ails us, you know, and this whole movement, um, you people talk about the woke movement, so on and so forth. Um, George Soros backing woke candidates for state's attorneys across the country. Um, The progressive defund the police. It's put us in this position. And you can't tell, you know, and, and I'm not that political, and, but I do say this. The left is too far left and the right is too far right. And there's 90 percent of the population in between. We've got to get that back. And I actually see some positive movement in the fact that Paul Vallis is up for election for mayor because I, I thought from the beginning he's the only candidate who could do something positive, quite frankly. Well, Brent- and, I, and I like I like a lot of those candidates. They're friends of mine. But by the same token, somebody's got to draw the line. We've got to stop. We, we've got to stop. We've got to stop everything. This combative nature of politics has just put us in a really bad place. Well, I, don't, I wanted to get your reaction to this because Superintendent Brown said to reporters yesterday, well, the suspect doesn't have, quote, much of a criminal history. But if you look at what he did last year, he shouldn't have been out on the streets. But yet you have Kim Fox in that revolving door at 26 and Cal. What do you want to say to Kim Fox? Oh, the accountability only goes to the police these days, which, by the way, you know, the next step in the evolution of that thought process that I'm trying to put out there with that guest columnist uh, thing that I did with John Cass is that the police did not event segregation or poverty or the breakup of the family unit. But it seems like we're accountable for all of that, aren't we? The police are the only people who are being held accountable. Elected officials like prosecutors um, who determine that they don't want to enforce the law. And I'm going to take it even as far as sheriffs who determine that they're not going to enforce the law. We don't have an option. And I, I said this over and over again during my tenure that, you know, go back to the NATO summit. I said that I would protect the First Amendment right of people to burn the American flag, even though my dad was in the 28th Regiment at the base of Mount Suribachi when they raised that flag on Iwo Jima. So we don't, have a, we don't have a choice to determine which laws that we want to enforce. And unfortunately, as I look at it, with all these layers of oversight in the Chicago Police Department, I think it's been set up for failure. Well, what happened? You know, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What 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 ha- You know, uh, David Brown obviously announced he's uh, resigning effective the middle of this month. He he sees the writing on the wall with the new mayor coming in. But but even if you had Paul Vallis, and even if he put in uh, a police chief from a bygone era that was interested in policing and not politicking, uh, I mean, how, how much structural change? How long will it take? Do you think? from where the police department is now 
for the police department to get back to a place where it can have a real impact on improving public safety in Chicago? Well, I think that that can happen. <clears throat> it can start to happen very quickly. It's going to happen in fits and, and, and starts. Um, you know, I, I, I had the opportunity. I went through this in New York City. I was a young captain when um, Bill Bratton came to town with, and dare I say the name, Rudy Giuliani. Right. Um, and they determined that we were going to be proactive about crime, not reactive to crime. We're not just going to pick up bodies and shell casings. We're going to stop the crimes before they happen. And, you know, they set us in motion and it didn't take very long for it to kick in because it was it was really driven from the top of the agency. But like you said, though, Dan, the, the structural changes that have now put in place, um, who's selecting the next police superintendent? Um, how, how much authority do they have? And I, and I talk about this frequently. A bad business model is um, accountability without authority. And, and this right. is not to my own defense, but the, the fact is I did not have the Laquan McDonald investigation, the Van Dyke investigation. IPRA had it, which is now COPA. I could not fire Jason Van Dyke. I could only make a recommendation to the police board. So <laughs> give somebody the authority and the accountability, not just the accountability. And there's a stovepipe system that has come out of different tragedies or scandals that have happened in, in Chicago. <clears throat> and we end up with the system that we're looking at today. And, and it just got more and more complicated over the last um, four years with different ordinances being passed. I, I, I thought that the police board was going to go out and find the next police superintendent. But apparently there's another group that just got elected that's going to do that, that has right. the ability to hire and fire. Right. That's You're ridiculous. even taking well, away the kids. mayor's authority. Well, so You're taking it, away the mayor's you know, right. It, right. Kids I mean, made that council board no, it's a good it's a good point. It's a good point. Uh, if if that police board, I mean, let, let's just play out that metaphor uh, with uh, with New York. If if that uh, police board actually made a good decision, brought in somebody like Bratton uh, and he said, you know, we're going back to what we know works. We're going to go back to something akin of a 21st century update of broken windows policing. Right. And we've got civilian authorities that are going to back us up. And you've got a mayor and at least a majority of the city council that's going to back that play. If it just in, in terms of trying to think about something simple uh in, in construct, if that was to come to pass, do you think we could turn the city on a dime when it comes to the endemic violence? We could we could start that turn. It's like turning an aircraft carrier. It's not yeah. going to happen in a heartbeat. Yeah. But the but the the seeds can be sown. You know, the impact of leadership is is overwhelming, and I don't think people realize it. Um, you know, Bill Bratton and, and his crew that came in because it wasn't just him. He brought up people from lower ranks um, and, and basically fired the whole upper echelon. And uh, he was completely supported uh, by the mayor until such time as they started fighting over who gets credit. <laughs> yeah, right. And, um, you know, um, but, but I think that it can be done. I think that the, the seeds of it need to be sown and then it can start very quickly. But there's always going to be people out there who are going to say, no, this isn't going to work. And it's and it's tragic. But, you know, this is the place where we are. We're going to have to start 
rolling up our sleeves and digging ourselves out. If, if, it's really that simple. If you if you were uh, looking, if you were in Chicago today as a you know, kid fresh out of college and looking for a career in law enforcement, would you want to go to the Chicago Police Academy and become a Chicago police officer? Um, probably not. And, and it's, <laughs> that's, that really says something because I always wanted to be a police officer. I actually had my dad's shield when I was a police officer in New York City. And um, it's something I always wanted to do. In these conditions, it's, it's thankless. You do your job, you get in trouble. You don't do your job, you get in trouble. You don't even know what your job is anymore because it's, it's public relations over public safety. Uh huh. You know, yeah. and, and the that's a good and summary. the crux of the crux of my article the other day has it that we're you know we're dancing at block parties. We've given up our core mission of providing for the public safety in search of building trust. Well, you can't build trust unless you have legitimacy, and our legitimacy comes from providing for the public safety. So it, it's it's a failed system. It needs to be stopped. It needs to be corrected. Somebody's got to right the ship instead of, I thought the captain goes down with the ship, right? Yeah. Not the case now. They so jump and ship. The Brandon Johnson, obviously in the runoff with Paul Vallis, uh, wants to hire not more police officers, but social workers to deal with incidents that happened yesterday with domestic violence calls. And uh, what are your thoughts on that? Um, we're going to end up with some dead social workers. Right. I mean, it's the same issue. I, I've heard the debate about um, CSOs in schools and school shootings. A social worker is not going to stop somebody with an AK-47 walking through the door of a school. And I don't, I don't know how to explain this any differently. Look at what's been happening. It's not working. Stop doing it. Stop yeah. doing it. Let's go back to tried and true fashion. We know how to reduce crime. We did I, it in New York. I, we did love, it in Newark. Yeah, I love the idea of like public relations over policing. The dancing at black at block wow. parties is like a is like a great uh, is a great image because it's like it's like the parent who wants to be their kid's friend rather than be the parent. What you want is for the police officer to be respected. And how do you gain respect by providing for the neighborhood safety, not by yeah. showing up at block parties to Singing groove karaoke? Yeah, I mean, who cares? Um, but that's the yeah. attitude that we've taken: public relations over public safety. That uh, that is an that's an excellent way to summarize it. He is uh, former yeah. Chicago Police Superintendent Gary can McCarthy. I just add, can I just? I'm sorry, Dan. Just yeah, to go add ahead. To that. Go ahead. What that's doing is that's that might be good for meeting kids, but the bad guys are looking at us and saying, "Look at these fools! What a joke! They are not doing their job. Let's go get a gun. Let's go do a robbery." Yeah, yeah. Well, the numbers bear that out. There's no question about it. Gary McCarthy, former Chicago Police Superintendent. Gary, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. My pleasure, guys. And currently, Have a great day. Yeah, currently the police chief at Willow Springs, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. You're listening to Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Just uh, 
one postscript uh, in thinking about what Gary McCarthy had to say last hour about policing in Chicago and then hearing this report about Governor Pritzker still weighing his options when it comes to endorsing in the mayor's race. Uh huh. Okay. Um, remember the anti police attitude that McCarthy was speaking about goes all the way up to Governor Spaulding. Mm-hmm. Um, made an issue of this. I made an issue of it because the niece of Sergeant James Severn made an issue of it in the last election. That it's Governor Pritzker's Illinois State Parole Board that is releasing cop killers. Releasing cop killers who were sentenced to life in prison, who killed Sergeant James Severin in an amb- and Anthony Rosado, Patrolman Anthony Rosado, in an ambush in 1970. They were supposed to serve life, like life without parole. And they get paroled. Uh, and they got, the, the first one got paroled two years ago, and the next one is up for parole this summer, and it's J.B. Pritzker's hand-pointed parole board. So, uh, again, the message that sends, as well as the attitude it evinces. Okay. But I thought the Democratic Party was going to shift gears now and be more pro-police. Per uh, Biden. Pu- yeah. With respect to public relations, not poli- not actual policing. It's exactly what Gary McCarthy said. It's such a nice way to summarize it in a single phrase. Public relations over public safety. From a public relations perspective, for political reasons, sure, they're going to mouth those words right substantively don't count on it uh speaking of the big guy mr 10 percent, president biden uh he was asked to explain why people don't understand how good things are under his presidency in terms of their economic fortunes abc news prompted him here's what he said well look i think it's goes well beyond the economy Think about it. You make the news. I mean, you interview for the news. Can you think of anything they turn on the television and go, God, that makes me feel good? Almost anything. Everything is in the negative. We're also finding out now that uh, one of the outlets has decided that they don't put things on they know to be false in order to uh, increase their ratings. Of course. (laughs) Again, it's just a public relations problem. They're suffering from a public relations onslaught by the right, you know, the vast right-wing conspiracy. For more on this, uh, pleased to be joined by the capitalist pig, Jonathan Honig, founding member of the capitalist pig hedge fund, Fox News contributor, author of a new textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Just, uh, just Just a perception problem. People just don't appreciate how good they have it because... There's just so much negativity from news outlets. <laughs> well, I mean, it's just the, the economics, and Dan and Andy, great to be with you. Good morning. The economics of that simply don't add up. I mean, the inflation, which was created, I believe, under President Trump and certainly exacerbated and continues to be exacerbated under President Biden, despite the so-called Inflation Reduction Act, that is prompting people at the end of the day to have a lower quality of life. We've talked about it. I mean, it could be not simply summed up on a spreadsheet, Dan, and I mean, people are working more earning less, lower quality of life, lower values for their families and their futures. So this is that national malaise that's affecting every American at every different economic level that the, I don't know, the president seems either to want to just ignore or evade whole cloth. And so the uh, advice and counsel from a capitalist pig like yourself is um, stick to cash uh, at this point with uh, the um, 
uh, dubious state of markets and the um, unknowns as with respect to Fed policy, uh, cash pays right now. Yeah, well, I mean, think about it, Dan. The cash now, you know, for the first time in 16 years, a U.S. government bond actually yields more than 5%. But it's not a sure thing. I mean, keep in mind, we still have inflation running at 7%. So on an inflation-adjusted basis, even before taxes, you're still losing money. So this is what, you know, inflation vexed four U.S. presidents, Dan. As you know, everyone from Kennedy all through Reagan, it caused a decade-plus worth of economic distress for the United States. So I think there's places to mon- make money here. I think you can find some opportunities in, in uh, commodities, even perhaps in some stocks. But this is going to be a very difficult environment in which to preserve the purchasing power of your wealth. And it's, it's not because of uh, tumult overseas. It's not even because of the greedy CEOs. It's because of the fiscal and financial policies of the U.S. government whole, you know, wholeheartedly. Um, it's, uh, just thinking about that locally, we have um, a mayoral candidate in Brandon Johnson who uh, said uh, during the uh, rioting that goes on in Chicago, you know, routinely these days, uh, that uh, while you can't defend people looting stores on Michigan Avenue, for example, the real problem is big corporations looting the taxpayers for profit. Is that is that what's happening in Chicago? Is that the problem in Chicago is the big companies looting taxpayers, making profits at the expense of the little guy? I mean, what an unbelievable insult, Dan, to those companies which are now leaving the city. I mean, Tyson Foods, Citadel, Boeing. I mean, these companies are taking their, I don't know, evil. They're taking their jobs, their investment, their billions of dollars, and they're going somewhere else. And how can you blame them, Dan? I mean, you saw that. Headline this morning, Damon Andy, you saw that headline this week that in the Chicago area businesses are going to be expected to have their own armed security to protect themselves. I mean, this city can't even protect the basic economic freedoms of its own citizens, that, you know, not to remember their own actual rights, their own physical rights. So this is why so many businesses, big and small, are abandoning the city. And Damon Andy, as you know, you've been talking about it for months now. We need new leadership, economic leadership. Uh, political leadership. So a change has got to come. Otherwise, the city will continue to sink and bring our fortunes down with it. I don't know if you've been down State Street or Michigan Avenue lately, but I I don't even know where to start with how to get that back and businesses back. Because one of the main staples was uh, Old Navy. They were there for 12 years and they just pulled out. So literally there's almost nothing left on State Street. Oh, it's no big deal. We got casinos and we got marijuana dispensaries. That's all we need. (laughs) Well, I mean, there's, there's, there's no respect ever given, my opinion, uh, guys, from, you know, the, the type of thinking that comes in for a business owner. You know, they always say business owners are short-term thinking. I mean, for a company to come and make a multi-billion dollar investment in Illinois, in Chicago, you know, bringing in all the infrastructure, bringing in all the investment dollars, I mean, that's not done just on, on a, a whim. But, of course, taxes from City Hall, taxes from, from Springfield, those still come on a whim. Oh, an extra 1% here, an extra 5% here, and it – you know, it not just hurts the so-called greedy corporations, it hurts those small business people, Dan. And you've got, Dan, and you've so many in your audience. Maybe they've got one employee. Maybe they've got two just struggling to make, you know, you know, high five figures, maybe low six figures a year. And along comes the Washington and says, oh, no, that'll be another five grand, ten grand. It's outrageous. And it's exactly what's hollowing out the economy from the inside. Well, there's something else, too. You know, the, the talk uh, – First of all, the state of Illinois, like these surveys of CEOs like Executive Magazine does, I mean, for the de- the last decade, Illinois has been in the bottom three and where CEOs say they would locate a business with New York and California. 
I mean, it's just that's where it's been. And you see the attrition that's gone on and you have high profile examples and then you have below the fold examples that people don't pay attention to because they're not big enough, well-known enough companies, but they add up and they add up quickly and they're uh, concurrent with the exodus of talent and capital from Illinois. And, and But the cover story is always, well, hey, hey, Dan, Jonathan, look at the West Loop. We got Google. We got young professionals. The West Loop is vibrant and so on and so forth. And to some extent, that's true. And to some extent, that is a Potemkin village. Yeah, right. A massive company like Google can uh, make it make sense for the talent pool that's still here to locate an operation in the West Loop. But the, but the economics that some a business like Google faces is very very rarefied air. The risk versus reward, uh, port, you know, the the risk versus versus reward analysis that most other companies that don't operate in that stratosphere are facing, make it a no brainer to stay away from here. And that that's what sort of isn't explained when companies like Google or other big tech behemoths are pointed to. Yeah, I think it's a, a spot-on point, Dan. And, you know, the irony is now who, looking at today's economy, I mean, the, the big tech companies are the ones, in many ways, that benefited both, mostly from, if you will, the pandemic. A lot of stimulus money uh, came, a lot of the low interest rates, the uh, financial uh, benefits uh, flowed to those large, big, mega-cap companies. But now, as big companies begin to cut jobs and cut back, it's exactly those big tech companies where most of the cuts are coming. So you know, this will play out. Again, I stress that idea of the inflation of the 70s. It wasn't a one-quarter or even a one- or two-year type of a, of a phenomenon. This unfolded over seven, eight, nine, ten years. And you know, that's why those who are, you know, the president's taking a victory lap because he supposedly has inflation under control. It's come down from, you know, 8% to 7.5% or 7%. But, you know, this is a genie that's not going to be put back in the bottle. And as I said, it comes down to everyday Americans feeling it. They're not going on the vacations they would have. They're not buying the, the goods and services they would have. They're not sending their children to the schools they would have. All that's due to not their own greed or incompetence but the financial decisions made by elected officials. And that's why, you know, really the inflation has to be bought in D.C. much more on Wall Street, than Wall Street, Dan and Amy. Well, you know, Carter gave way to Reagan. Biden maybe gives way to DeSantis. We'll see. Um, one other topic I wanted to tackle with you because I just find this so comical. This is akin to uh, the Chinese Communist peace plan for Ukraine. Uh, TikTok set to uh, limit uh, to one hour daily screen time for users under 18. Those are our Chinese communist overlords looking out for our kids again. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> I don't have a TikTok account, Dan, but you have to admire their uh, uh, you know, ingenuity here and basically trying to get out in front of that impending regulation. I mean, one thing that Democrats and Republicans agree on, I guess big tech is evil. I don't know. I, I seem to use and enjoy their services most of the day long, but you, know, you see that regulation coming down the pipeline for social media writ large. So you know, we've seen a lot of these companies try to get out ahead of it. And Elon's been doing major changes, they know, at Twitter and they know TikTok, especially given the fact that there is ties to the Chinese government, as you said, Dan. I mean, getting out ahead of it, especially when it comes to the kids. It was all about the kids. So by limiting that screen time and basically saying you'll need parental uh, uh, permission to access for more than an hour if you're underage, trying to get ahead of what D.C. is doing in terms of regulation of big tech. He is the capitalist pig, Jonathan Honig, founding member of the Capitalist Pig Hedge Fund, Fox News contributor, author of A New Textbook of Americanism, The Politics of Ayn Rand. Jonathan, thanks as always. Best to you both. Be well. 
Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. If you're talking about it, Dan and Amy are talking about it. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Yes, you're giving me shattered dreams of a quality education. Um, I mentioned this when we were talking about the trans takeover of the schools on the Isle of Man earlier in the program. And I wanted to deliver on it because I know this is important. If you're keeping up with uh, all 73 genders, then you need to be able to distinguish them. And I know a lot of people are asking, hey, Dan, what's the difference between a paraboy and a demiboy? How did you know I was going to ask you that? Because a lot of people are asking. I can't it. even mention five genders. Yeah, I don't know. So um, take out your notebooks and and here's a distillation okay. of the difference between a paraboy and a demi boy. What's the what's the what's the difference? Yeah, <laughs> paraboy versus. Demi boy! Hey! <laughs> People who identify as paragender feel as though their gender is made up of a dominant gender and a minor gender or genders. And people who identify as paraboy feel as though their dominant gender is male. While their minor gender could be any gender and genders, but their dominant is male. Versus people who identify as demi-boy, who feel as though part of their gender is male, and the other part could be any or multiple genders. The only difference between paraboy and demi-boy is people who identify as paraboy know that their dominant gender is male. While people who identify as demi-boy feel as though their gender is partly male. People who identify as demi-boy may feel that part of their gender is male, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it is the dominant gender. Versus people who are paraboy who know that their dominant gender is male. Not every paraboy and demiboy are the same as other paraboys and demiboys. And they may identify as any way that they want to identify. But we love our paraboy and demiboys. <laughs> yeah. Does that help? Ew, ew. What, what, what did I just listen to? What was the that? more you know. I don't know if uh, that uh, young man I don't, I don't is know. on the faculty at Harvard yet, but I'm sure he will be soon enough. Yeah, paraboy versus demiboy, if you're trying to keep up with the all 73 genders. Uh, and this is what you need to know because you're not going to be looped in if you're a parent. At least that's the attitude of so many school districts, so many administrators, so many teachers. And we know this is particularly pronounced in California because of those audio tapes that Abigail Schreier was sent of a California Teachers Association meeting a couple of years ago where teachers were specifically talking about how to work around parents who are not on board with their child having uh one gender at school and another gender at home or uh, or working on a new gender at school with the help of teachers and staff and keeping this information from parents that you're referring to your child or their child by a different name or a different uh, gender when they're in school. 
Well, that's exactly what happened to Aurora Regino, and she is now suing her child's school district. She's a California mom, and she's suing her child's school district for allegedly transitioning her 11-year-old's gender in secret, doing exactly what I suggested they do, doing exactly what they suggested they would do on those tapes that Abigail Schreier made public a couple of years ago. Aurora Regina joins us now. Uh, Miss Regino, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hi, thank you. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell us the story of what happened with your child. Well, um, <laughs> she was going to elementary school um, uh, here in California, in Northern California, at a school called Sierra View. And she had um, some confusion over her sexuality and voiced it to uh, the school counselor. Um, she's the head of what they call the wellness center um, at the school. And uh, that day that she opened up to the counselor, the counselor walked her to class and asked her if she would like to change her pronouns in class and that she would speak to her teacher and have that done for her <laughs> that day. Okay, and then, so and and that and that uh, ostensibly happened, and yes. and when did then, you find out about it? Yeah. Well, that's really kind of the interesting thing because you know they they kind of the school district is saying that they are unable to let parents know unless the child tells them that they can let parents know. Well, sure. in fact, this this counselor was having one on one meetings with my child that I did not know of. And during these one-on-one meetings, um, after they transitioned my daughter at school to a boy without my knowledge, she did tell the counselor that she wanted to tell me. And the counselor uh, just kind of disregarded or just ignored her request and was trying to encourage her to come out to other people first (laughs) and not help her try to come out to um, to her mother and her family. So... Um, my my daughter told my um, my mother, which my mother told me, and that's how I found out um, that she was, you know, a boy at school and she was still a, a a girl at home. How long was that going on? The the boy at school, girl at home, before you knew. So, um, once I you know had reached out and uh, talked to the counselor about when the initial um, coming out was to her, I think she told me it was. Um, about the middle of February, and then um, I found out at uh, the beginning of April. So I would say, you know, a couple months. A couple months. And then when uh, you found this out and you uh, went to the school to talk to the counselor and or administrators, what did they say to you? You know, <laughs> that's kind of um, eye-opening for me, too. I guess i you know, very naive, and I just thought, well, you know, th- the fact that the counselor did this just so quickly and behind my back that, you know, our administrators would think that that was wrong <laughs> and they wouldn't want that for the children of the district, especially at such a young age. Um, to my surprise, uh, none of them really wanted to hear much of what happened and they just wanted to tell me that this was law. They didn't want to hear the story of how quick it was or really you know, even any of the specifics, they wanted to go straight to bullying me and telling me that there's nothing I can do and that this is the law. So what was your daughter's, I mean, did you notice a change in your daughter's attitude or behavior? 
during that time? You know, she transitioned um, to school, but not at home. So there was a difference in um, her style and behavior. Um, Our family had been through quite a bit of trauma within the last year. We had, um, my father died, and then six months later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I'm a single mom of my two young children, so she definitely was going through some distress, and during this change, um, I was also studying for state boards to be a nurse, so our family had a lot of, let's say, turmoil at that time. You know, nothing that was, you know, extremely uh, rare or but it was a hard time for our family let's just say and so I she she did was she was kind of developing like a a different style which I was kind of thought was different and um, she wasn't wearing her cute little sweaters that she normally wore she always identified you know if you were to pick like male or female she always was very girly even at a very young age so the change in wanting to wear sweats opposed to like cute jeans and sweaters was a little different for me and I asked her about it but then I also you know she had just started puberty and you know I was letting her as long as it was appropriate you know attire letting her being able to be an individual and wear what she liked as well so um and she was sleeping a lot during that time and so I would you know I would talk to her and she would just say I think I'm growing and mind you it was kind of a short little time and like I said I was a little preoccupied (laughs) for those studying for those boards so it it was just a very confusing time for our family in general but I never thought in a million years that the school district would transition her without my knowledge I thought if there's something significant that was going on with my child at school they would reach out to me in some way and in fact um, when I went in for the parent-teacher conference I talked to her teacher specifically and I said look you know our family has gone through these you know hardships this year um, the death of my dad and me having cancer. If you see any changes with my daughter at school, please reach out to me because, you know, I am not here with her at school. And if she's displaying any sort of distress, please let me know. <laughs> and um, they didn't. Do you, do they you didn't think, at all. Do you think this is, do they, do they have like uh, some idea that you wouldn't be supportive and, or is this just from your intuition or maybe understanding that this is just policy? They just they just do this regardless of whether they think the parent is on board or not. Well, you know, I actually asked the counselor that specific question. I said, why wouldn't you let me know? Like, well, why wouldn't you let me know what's going on with my child? Like, why, why, in your professional opinion, think that this was the best way to go um, with her and wanting to transition? Um, and she said, well, I've let parents know in the past, and it didn't go well. And I, <laughs> oh, my gosh. Of course. <laughs> yeah, of course. So just avoid the parents so we could solve that problem. <laughs> that's no, that's yeah. easy enough. Um, do you know? Well, do, and I think. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I think the biggest thing for me was um, that she was going through all this. She was transitioned at school by her without her family support. And um, not to say I wouldn't support her because I would. I probably wouldn't have done it immediately because she had never displayed um, any sort of confusion with her sexuality for any length of time. But if it continued, I would definitely support her and I would give her the tools to help um, her go through that change at school. Let's say the bullying that the transgender community, you know, constantly 
you know, cries out and they're, you know, saying, oh, this is the reason why we need all these laws in place because we're bullied and all this stuff. Well, my daughter went through all that by herself. The school district transitioned her and just left her to figure it all out on her own as an 11-year-old young girl. And nobody was around to help her and support her. She was eating lunch by herself in the library, which she was always a very social, happy child before that would never have done that. She was going into the school office and now was outed. These administrators in the office were calling her by a boy name and her new, you know, pronouns. And she's thinking, how did they even know it? I didn't tell them. You know, they basically outed her publicly with everybody except letting her own family know. Well, sure. She's a mascot for them. What, um, uh, what, where is she now in terms of all this, your daughter? So um, she is now identifying as a girl and she's, oh. you know, She's doing well, and she has um, gotten back into her regular, bubbly, happy self again. She's not sleeping all the time. She, um, like, we look back at pictures even during that time, and she kind of just looked like a deer in a headlight. Like, her eyes were just kind of, like, wide open, very confused. I mean, I think you can think about how confusing that would be and for a young child to be one thing at school, and something totally different at home, it must be, it was totally confusing for her. In Did, fact, it was, it was damaging to a young child that was in distress because of the, the situation that happened, what was going on at home, right. you know, with our family. And they really made wounds that she had even deeper. Did they um, attempt or talk about putting her on puberty blockers or anything like that to facilitate a further transition? Um, She said the counselor was talking to her about um, support groups outside of school. The um, local one here is called Stonewall Alliance and how she could um, reach out to them and get um, a breast binder to bind her breast to help with the transition. She also brought up to my daughter about top surgery. (laughs) My 11-year-old daughter. Yep. Um, I don't, I don't remember. She did not say anything about puberty blockers. Um, but she did, she did bring up those things with my daughter without my knowledge. Skipping ahead, you know, top surgery, skipping ahead right past the puberty blockers. Um, the, um, the other parents in the school, you know, parents of other kids in the school that, you know, did, do do did they know that this was the school policy? Have you had conversations with other parents? You know, (laughs) I didn't realize this was the policy when everything first happened. I really thought that this counselor did an overreach and the school district would want to know and stop this from happening. It wasn't until um, my meeting with the superintendent that, that they were hard nosed that this was a law. It, you know, they, they were very misleading during you know, some of our conversations, obviously my first conversation with the principal and even the head of the elementary schools, um, Ted Sullivan, they were very much like, this is the law, you know, what do you want us to do? Break the law kind of thing. And then I met with um, an individual, which is the assistant superintendent of our district, Jay Marchant. And he was, you know, um, misleading in the fact where he was, he was the first one I felt like actually listened to my daughter's story and what happened And was even listening, like, well, what do you, you know, he would say things kind of like, well, what would you think we should do? And I'm like, bring the parents in unless 
you have reason to believe that they're going to harm the child. Like, why would you automatically go to straight to hiding it from the family? You're actually damaging the child. Right. They're <laughs> or, they're harming the child um, by by protect. I mean, it's just everything's upside down, obviously. But but other parents, like like do, parents of other students, do they know about this, or do they do now they because do, of your story? They do now. They do now. They do know. I, I, I really, during the process, I kind of kept it within my circle and within my close friends. There were some people that knew, but I really wanted the district to do the right thing. I wasn't yeah. looking to, you know, have to um, make let a stance to let yeah. people know how wrong it was. Because I really thought they, they thought they would think it was wrong, too. <laughs> Aurora Regino, California mom, suing her child's school district in California, of course, for, as you just heard her describe, attempting to transition her 11-year-old in secret without the parents hiding behind the quote-unquote law. Uh, Aurora, you know, um, first of all, I'm glad your daughter is doing well and yeah. your family is doing better. And uh, thank you for your time and good luck with your suit against that school district. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. And she joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. This is The Morning Show. More Chicago radio listeners are choosing. This is Chicago's Morning Answer on AM560, The Answer. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773 467 5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.